1: the NCCU School of Law, and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Since the 2015 murder of nine African-Americans in a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina by a white supremacist, there have been increasing calls for the removal of Confederate flags and monuments from public spaces. Following the violent alt-right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in August, 2017, the calls for removals of these monuments were renewed. And with the tragic killing of George Floyd in May of this year, the calls for removal have even intensified. And many states and cities throughout the country have taken steps to remove these divisive symbols of white supremacy and oppression of Black people. However, in North Carolina, one of the states with the most Confederate monuments A 2015 law essentially prevents the removal of Confederate monuments in North Carolina located on public property. Notwithstanding this North Carolina law, slowly but surely the statues are coming down. For example, protesters brought down a monument at the Durham Courthouse and the Silent Sam Memorial at UNC Chapel Hill. In November of last year, Chatham County officials removed a Confederate statue from the Pittsburgh courthouse after determining that the statue was on private property. And this year, after protesters toppled two statues that were at the base of a Confederate monument on the state capitol, Governor Cooper ordered the removal of three of the monuments, concluding that the monuments were a public safety risk. And just recently, a Confederate monument in downtown Salisbury was removed after Salisbury City Council voted to remove it following a determination that it was a public safety risk as well. On this evening's show, we'll be talking about Confederate statutes and monuments in North Carolina and efforts to remove them. Joining us for this discussion is Angaza Laughinghouse, a proud graduate of NCCU School of Law and he's an attorney and community organizer for the Black Workers of Justice. Also joining us is Deborah Dix-Maxwell, who is the president of the New Hanover NAACP. And finally, we have joining us Sierra McCairn, who is a rising third-year law student at NCCU School of Law. Thank you all for joining us this evening. So I'd like to start first by talking about Confederate monuments generally. So a number of people believe that these monuments and statutes were erected uh, shortly after the Civil War to honor those that, that died in the Civil War. Um, who'd like to start just kind of sharing your thoughts about why these monuments were erected and, and when they were erected and the symbolism behind them? Nangaza, we're going to start with you.
2: Okay, I was about to volunteer myself, but I said, (laughs) let me just wait to make sure somebody else doesn't want to go first. Yeah, so it's interesting, man. So for years of my life, like I assumed the same thing, that the statutes were put up right after the Civil War happened to go ahead and and, and just remember the folks that had died in the Civil War, man. My dumb, young, naive thinking at the time. But then later on in life, I did some research and I realized, wait, these statutes were built 30 years later, 50 years later, 80 years later. And ironically, they were built at times when there was racial tension across America. And by racial tension, I mean Black folks were progressing and white folks didn't like it. Black folks were demanding that oppression, legalized oppression enforce, and white folks didn't like that. So in response to that, we see these huge statues going up, figureheads of people that fought to keep us in chains and slavery and bondage. As a reminder, of the place that we were in and the place that we're supposed to be during these times of tension in the country. And so much so that you think you ask yourself, well, why in the world does Bronx, New York, Bronx up in New York, why do they need the statue of, who was it? Robert E. Lino, Stonewall Jackson, one of them two, built back in 1957. What does that have to do with anything up there in New York? But you remember what was going on in 1957, the Black resistance, the Black Power Movement. So in return, you need white power, white supremacy to remind folks to stay in their place.
1: Thank you for that. President Maxwell, what are your thoughts?
3: I concur with him. And also the timing is just more than just an eruption. You have to realize like some of these statues were built in the 1920s, which was after World War. Our men came back from Europe. They had VA rights and GI bills. And there was a progression because of that also. And people wanted to stifle and stifle us. And it's really the location of where they place them. We know Richmond is full of them, but if you come to Wilmington, the first one you see, you have to travel up the street because it's elevated. And remember, we're a low-lying city, but they place it at the, one of the few places you have to look up to the statue, which is of George Davis. And behind that, and the next block is the one for the um, Confederate soldiers. And they were built like in 1911, 1924 as black, and, of course, they built them here to remind us of 1898 mm-hmm. and to keep us oppressed.
1: And Sierra, what, now you're um, the youngest of us amongst you know, our group, um, but I know you are someone who appreciates history as well. What, what did, have you learned about the erection in terms of the time and place of these Confederate statutes and monuments?
4: I definitely agree with um, what's already been said, but I also think the location is very important. Um, I think someone spoke to it earlier, but um, just the fact that these are placed in places that, that will, see high traffic. Like I know the, the monument in, that was previously in Pittsburgh was right in the center of town. And so no matter where you were going, um, living there all my life, like you go around this courthouse, you go around this space. So it's going to be something that you see, um, you know, all the time. And and once you see it, you don't not see it. Um, and so I think that that's important to, um, just, the, the strategy that's behind it um, is very, very important. And I think it plays a lot into um, what these monuments represent. So you mentioned
1: you grew up in Pittsburgh. So were you aware of the, of the significance of, of that, um, of, of the monuments there in Chatham County when you were growing up? And, and at what point did you um, realize the message that was being sent?
4: Um, So I didn't realize it for a while, honestly. Um, And I think it started, I think I became more just aware of like racial tension um, after um, I was headed to a basketball game and we were about to play, I think this was middle school and we were going to like a town um, that kind of had like a history of some like racial um, tension. And there was a, Uh, We turned on the wrong street and there was a tractor with a scarecrow or, you know, those type of, I don't know, like some type of like body um, sitting on the tractor and the face was painted black. And there was it was right under a tree and there was a noose um, connected to the, the scarecrow's neck that was painted black. And, you know, I just remember like all of that like everyone on the bus and, we, you know, we were middle school kids. So everyone was like upset and like cursing and just like, it was just a lot going on. Um, and I think that really started some of the questions that I had um, about race and like what it meant to be like from where I was from. Um, and so I think that's when I started to pay attention. Um, and I don't remember exactly when I learned what the monument meant, but it's definitely something that you know, once you
0: see you, you can't unsee it. So, well, you know the uh, in in Pittsburgh, if if, if I'm correct, the uh, monument is also right at the courthouse, uh, the uh, steps yeah. of the courthouse. there's and there are a lot of cities or towns in North Carolina uh, where right outside of the uh, courthouse, uh, you uh, you find these uh, statues of. Uh, located. Um, But typically, it's just one or two that's located uh, there. I think Wilmington has uh, the uh, Guinness World's Record of uh, statues and monuments uh, located uh, there. And uh, while there are certainly some that's devoted to the uh, Confederate uh, heroes, as they are called, many of them focus on uh, uh, 1898. And the 1898 uh, rebellion, and uh, wherever you go uh, in uh, in Wilmington, there are reminders of that uh, overthrow from the uh, uh, parks to the streets. Uh, so, Deborah, could you kind of just talk about the uh, placements of uh, those uh, monuments, not only the ones from the Confederate days, uh, but also the uh, 1898. Uh, commemorations that you find located at a number of different places uh, in Wilmington.
3: Well the 1898 Commission has the official park at Cowan and Third Street which has the oars that symbol the ships that you know brought us over. Unfortunately, it's a small parcel of land. It should be the whole block which is now going through gentrification so we will probably never get to expand that site. Uh, They've also statues in the cemeteries, and one of them, they locked up the, the statue for safekeeping. I forgot which Confederate one that was, and just scattered throughout. Reminders of the fact that um, they illegally took over this city, and we have to legally take it back.
0: Well, there is a Hugh McCray Park, oh. which is the uh, uh, largest park. In, uh, in, in Wilmington, right there uh, down from the University of uh, North Carolina at Wilmington, uh, where the uh, Klan really up until uh, the 1980s uh, met uh, on, a, uh, on a regular uh, basis. Uh, then in Raleigh, most of the uh, monuments are stored around the uh, Capitol building and uh, kind of uh, uh, designed to protect incursions. Uh, on the uh, governor's office and the state governmental uh, complex. So, uh, Angaza, can you kind of talk about just uh, the the importance and impact of uh, those statues coming down uh, in uh, in Raleigh?
2: Yeah, it's crazy, man. So when you asked my sister Sierra about how the statues made her feel back in the day, man, like I was thinking to myself when I was young, looking at these statues, it felt like it was hopeless. Like there's nothing that you can do to get these monuments removed. They're just gonna stick around there forever. But even when I go to Myrtle Beach and I see people waving Confederate flags and wearing Confederate flags on their shirt. Like I just said, well, that's just what they do down here. We in the South, it's just gonna happen. It's a part of life. But think about the symbolism that comes with that. So we know that these statues, these monuments, these flags represent white supremacy and Black oppression. So in my head, I was being internalized and forced to think that there was nothing that can be done about white supremacy, about Black oppression in this time right here. And these are just symbolistic reminders of it. So in Raleigh, when you go down to the state capitol, before they took it down, you saw this big 75-foot tall monument with a Confederate soldier on top and two other Confederate soldiers beside it. They had cannons out there, cannons that were used in the war to keep our people locked in slavery. They even had a monument for the women, uh, women of the Confederacy or something like that, for all the women that dedicated their energy and their time in order to support soldiers in the fight to keep us oppressed, too. So they got something for everybody down there at the Capitol in Raleigh. And you think during this time too, man, it's not just a simple feat to put these statues up, especially back in the early 1900s and the 1950s. Like this takes a lot of money, this takes a lot of political will, this takes a lot of planning, doing, and resources to do it, especially when them is 75 feet tall. So to just think that the state, the government at the Capitol put all this energy and time and money into building these monuments to keep us in our place, the years it tore me up on the inside. But then I'll say, there's one last thing, and I'll stop, too, man. I remember I was young, and I saw I was in, like, high school or something like that. But I saw no college, and I saw a video on World Star Hip Hop of a young brother and a sister, too. They was driving up the street, and they saw this dude waving these Confederate flags, had him for sale on the side of the street in South Carolina. And they went up there and took them things down and started cussing at him and fussing him out, just raw anger. But I looked at that, and I said, wow, these cats got that much courage that they'll do that, too? I don't have to be scared of these jokers. Like, it was changing for me man really phenomenal for me to see that right there these are coming out and we don't have to be scared we don't have to just sit back and accept it and if there's a will there is a way to make these things drop To change and challenge this white supremacy
1: and you know Gods, as you were sharing that that story um it it of course makes me think about what's going on in north carolina and this is coming down um so we of course we've got this 2015 law And we're seeing that there are orders that are being issued to remove the statues because of health and safety or public safety risk. Um, But that didn't arise until you had people who said, we're not going to be afraid anymore, and we're going to actually take some concerted action to topple these statues. Uh, Sierra, can you talk about the energy, particularly of of the youth, that is bringing about the change that we're seeing right now with the removal of these monuments?
4: I think the youth are, are really key um, to
1: to making this
4: happen. Um, I, I look at my little sister, she's, um, you know, 10 years younger than me, and just like seeing her and her friends, like seeing my little cousins out. Um, Pittsburgh has had a lot of protests, um, even since the monument has been removed. And, um, you know, seeing them out there just, you know with their signs or you know with their social media um posts all of those things um really speaking about the things that um maybe we had i know like people my age had internal conversations about or things that maybe weren't shared as openly um so i think that the the youth have a lot of uh strength and um power to to get things moving. But I don't think that that's new. Um, I think that's always been at the heart of change, right? Um, Young people, you know, getting tired or young people wanting to see something different than what their parents and grandparents experienced. And those are the, you know, the the people who have the strength to go forward and and make the changes that they want to see.
1: All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking about Confederate monuments, particularly here in North Carolina and efforts to remove them. We have as our guest on Gaza Laughing House, who is an attorney and community organizer for the Black Workers for Justice organization. Deborah Dix-Maxwell, who is the president of the New Hanover NAACP, and Sierra McAhern, who is an NCCU Law Rising 3L student. We're gonna take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back.
5: I'm Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. A monument serves to commemorate a person or event. Usually, monuments occupy public spaces that bolster the significance of a monument's symbolic and aesthetic qualities. However, as public spaces surrounding a monument evolve, the placement of the monument can alter how the monument is perceived. Various monuments in North Carolina illustrate this complicated relationship between monuments and the spaces they occupy. After the Civil War ended in 1865, Southerners began honoring the Confederacy with statutes and other symbols. Those opposed to public displays honoring the Confederacy raised their objections, but with little success. In 2015, white supremacist Dylan Roof massacred nine African Americans at a historic church in Charleston, South Carolina pictures surface depicting Roof with the Confederate battle flag in one hand and a gun in the other. This tragic event shed light again on the dark history behind the Confederacy and sparked a nationwide movement to remove Confederate monuments, flags, and other symbols from the public square. Despite the national call for removal of these symbols, today the vast majority of these emblems still remain in place. Approximately a month after the attack against black church members in South Carolina, the North Carolina General Assembly passed Statute 100-2.1, essentially prohibiting cities and counties from removing a monument owned by the state without approval by a state agency. While supporters of the monuments in North Carolina state that the monuments represent Southern heritage, opponents believe the monuments are a symbol of white supremacy, racism, and hundreds of years of systemic oppression against people of color. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and a legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening.
1: And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Deborah Dix Maxwell, who is the president of the New Hanover NAACP, and Gaza Laughinghouse, who is an attorney and community organizer, and Sierra who who is a rising 3L student at NCCU School of Law. And we've been talking about Confederate monuments in North Carolina, efforts to remove them. And Deborah, can you talk about the organizing and community efforts that are taking place in New Hanover County to remove the so many Confederate monuments in uh, your county?
3: Yes, uh, we have a young lady who's a petition expert, we found out now, and she wrote a petition to remove the monuments. She also wrote one to change that 2015 law um, that should have gotten more signatures than it did. Our city removed the petitions for, I mean, the statutes for public safety. They've been protests. Um, someone was arrested for sitting there. The Statues downtown had a curfew for their own safety (laughs) before they disappeared. So there's been comments made. There was a group before then, uh, about a year or two ago, when uh, people went down there, they were photographed by some camera. And my branch secretary was there because I was out of town at a state conference, something with state conference. And she said, they came to her house saying, we saw you near the statue. That's how intrusive Big Brother was in protecting those statues at that time, which is a shame. So they are slowly coming down, but we have people who resisted in Wilmington. As you know, the old guard does not want to let up, but they will have to, because it's too depressing to continue another generation seeing these oppressive figures throughout throughout the country, not just North Carolina. But those are the efforts: the petitions, city council, the protesters downtown. Um, they're selling T-shirts of the two guys who got arrested at the um, at the statues as a fundraiser. So there's a joint community effort across all age spectrums that they they must go along with changing Hugh McRae Park, which Irvin mentioned.
0: Well, you know the uh, the resistance has has become. Uh, real uh, over and above the uh, statute uh, that's in place that uh, legislators have uh, uh, repeatedly uh, referred to uh, in, in protest about the uh, taking down of the uh, Silent Sam and not replacing it. But uh, also in uh, Alamance County, and uh, April, you may be familiar with this, uh, the, uh, the both the sheriff And the uh, uh, mayor of uh, Graham uh, had uh, imposed unilaterally a curfew uh, and uh, uh, some regulations that prohibited more than two people from gathering around a uh, monument in that uh, in that city, which was recently the uh, subject of a lawsuit, uh, where the uh, judge had uh, enjoined. Uh, both the uh, city and the uh, sheriff department from enforcing that particular uh, uh, edict uh, there to, uh, in, 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 to allow uh, people to protest the uh, erection or the presence of the monument there. Uh, but Alamas is uh, kind of a hotbed of uh, resistance to the uh, removal of the uh, statue. So what's, what's going on there?
1: Yeah, as Deborah was talking about the old guard and the resistance in her county, of course, I I couldn't help but think about uh, my county, Alamance County. And um, yeah, Irv, as you mentioned, things have been really um, kind of shut down here. And so to the point where uh, you can't even have uh, even three people who want to get together and peacefully protest uh, if you had individuals who wanted to wear black lives matter shirt and walk along the um, the courthouse, the Graham, the Graham square, they could be told to disperse. Um, so fortunately there was this lawsuit that was filed requesting a temporary restraining order to prevent um, the mayor and the sheriff and the police from enforcing the ordinance and enforcing the emergency order uh, and that request was granted by a federal judge just recently, and so we're we're happy to see that. But it just shows that the efforts on the part of the old guard to prevent these statues from coming down. And when you think about the, you know, Angaza was talking about the political will and the um, willingness to expend time and energy and money to erect these statues. Well, we see the same thing when it comes to protecting them by some folks. And so there were snipers that were placed on the courthouse um, to protect the statute. This was particularly after the Durham uh, Confederate monument was brought down, um, Silent Sam. And so you've got people who are being paid overtime, law enforcement who are being paid overtime to try and protect this particular monument in Graham. Um, So the lawsuit and the decision by the federal judge, definitely a step in the right direction. Uh, But we see that there are some counties and some cities where you just have to fight a little bit harder. And then you've got other places where you've got much more progressive leadership. And um, even though the 2015 law is still in place, if there's a determination that these statues are causing a public Health and safety risk. Then there are other means by which to remove them, and so it's fortunate that we've got folks that are are using all tools within their arsenal to try and remove these um, these monuments.
0: Yeah. Also, in uh, in Chatham County, there's been some uh, resistance uh, to the uh, removal of uh, of statues and some protests by uh, right wing uh, groups or Confederate related. Uh, groups, uh, Sierra, uh, are you familiar with uh, with those actions there in Chatham County?
4: Yes, it's been um, it's been tough to watch. Like just you know growing up there, um, and well now I'm living in Durham, but um, just going back home to like visit my mom and you know seeing like huge Confederate flags like riding through town. Um, there was like a surge of people, um, putting up Confederate flags on their property. Um, there was one that was put up, um, across from, um, Horton Middle School, which is the middle school I went to, but it was named after George, um, Moses Horton. And so like, um, you know, just to, to, again, back to the strategy, like there, there's, there's so much strategy in the hatred. And I think that's, that's what's even more disgusting for me. So knowing that kids are leaving their middle school and there are people literally sitting outside um, in front of this flag with their lawn chairs and their pickup trucks and their music blasting um, with underneath this big flag. And, um, you know, it's, that that was just so disheartening to me Um, and then you know having the police kind of sit in the middle of the road um, to you know just make sure nothing's going on Um, and then on there have been like a lot of protests in general but on Juneteenth I actually saw a video of um, a protest that was happening even though the monument is gone at this point um, a protest that was occurring in town and um, like I watched the video from the beginning and everyone was like on their separate sides of the street. And um, I guess the people with the Confederate flags were ready to leave. And so instead of, mind you, this monument is in the middle of town. So there are multiple places where you can walk to your car, um, but they chose to walk in the direction of the people on the the other side or the opposing group. And they walked past them with these flags and just, you know, saying terrible things, Um, and so they walked past, and they were, like, look at you, like, retreating, retreating, or something, and I was just, it was disgusting, Um, and so then they had, you know, a few more words, and they ended up having, like, a physical altercation, and in the video, you can literally see um, someone with a confederate flag, like, swinging it, and, like, poking it, and, like, I've seen so many pictures of, you know, dogs attacking people and, you know, all of that stuff before, but to see it in in 2020 in action like literally like you could feel the hate like coming off like just watching the video. Um and so it ended with a lady who was actually a white lady um with like a bloody nose or some some type of blood coming from her face um which was also like the hate is really that deep that, you know, this isn't even black people that, that you're exerting this energy towards. Like you just hate the the thought of someone defending what you don't like or, or, you know, and so that was like, I was in tears and obviously still like sound crazy right now talking about it. But um so it, it's, it's been hard to watch um and, and, and just difficult to see. And especially now being 2020, like it, it's, it's hard to still see that and to see that much hatred and to feel it coming off that video.
0: Well, you know, in, uh, in Raleigh, and uh, this is kind of a, uh, a follow up on uh, what Deborah uh, talked about, but Josephus Daniels, who was the uh, owner and publisher of the uh, News and Observer and was one of the organizers and uh, uh, supportive uh, uh, actor in the 1898 uh, Wilmington uh, Rebellion uh, had a uh, statute uh, in uh, Raleigh uh, that was uh, crossed from the uh, city hall, and uh, right in front of the old News and Observer building, the uh, Daniels family, uh, to their credit, uh, when all of this uh, uh, upheaval began about monuments, uh, decided as a family to remove his monument from the uh, town square uh, there in in Raleigh. And uh, in the uh, middle of the night, uh, without any announcements to uh, anyone, uh, they the family had a crew uh, to come in and physically remove uh, that statue so that in the morning when people woke up, the statue was no longer uh, there. And following up on that, the uh, Wake County School Board then uh, changed the name of uh, the uh, Daniels Middle School, which was uh, named after Josephus, uh, Daniel's, uh, and that was a uh, kind of uh, commemoration uh, or acknowledgement of the importance of names uh, that are attached to uh, buildings and other structures in honor of people who were engaged in uh, racist activities uh, during their uh, during their lifetime. So there are some examples of people. Recognizing the errors of the uh, their ways and the history uh, that accompany that, and they're making amends to try to uh, change that, which is in contrast to the kinds of things that's going on in uh, uh, Chatham County, uh, in Alamance County, and a few other counties around the uh, around the state. So, uh, but we also need to look at, and I think you know, the Daniel's Middle School example is one that there are a lot of buildings that bear the names of these uh, racist uh, figures, luminaries uh, within uh, the Confederacy and within the uh, Jim Crow uh, movement. And some of those are located uh, right on the uh, campuses of uh, HBCUs and certainly on the uh, campuses of many of uh, the colleges and universities uh, within, the, uh, within the state. And uh, so I think that uh, when we talk about statues and monuments, we also ought to consider uh, the uh, changing of the names of some of these buildings, which were uh, designed to honor uh, some of these, uh, these characters uh, from the uh, days of old.
1: Yeah, I was thinking the, the same thing when Sierra was talking about um, the schools and, um, you know, buildings and then streets as well. Um, Angaza, what are your thoughts about? And you've talked about, you know, seeing these images. What what's the power of a name? So, you know, for children who are going to schools that are named after uh, racist historical figures, what does that do to one's psyche?
2: The power of a name is huge, and we know this is evidenced by the fact that as soon as white folks, European, brought us over here to America, they stripped us of our African names. So you think, well, why would they do that if it's just the name? If it's no big deal, why would they work so hard to strip our memory of our name, of our heritage, of everything that's attached to who we identify as? And it's because that's where your power comes from, from knowing who you identify as, from knowing who your past leaders were, from knowing who your heroes were, who fought for your country, who you see placed up, memorialized throughout the halls of history. So just as we get inspiration, power from the names of our leaders, of our ancestors, what is also something, the opposite effect that comes when we see the names of the leaders of our oppressors in front of us everywhere. I mean, imagine what it feels like if you walk into a school every day that's named after a white racist and you a black person. Imagine how it feels when you walk up into a courtroom and you dare you some poor defendant got hit with a misdemeanor and behind you see a slaveholder who is a judge and just see racist names all over the place. Well, it has an effect on your psyche, man. You feel hopeless walking into that situation. We even talked about times when we saw Confederate monuments in front of courthouses. And here I am, I'm an attorney, too. I should feel proud walking in there with my nice fancy suit on. But When I walk into these courthouses and I see that right there, especially as a young attorney at the time, too, I already know what I'm about to get when I go up in this courtroom. My energy, my spirit is already brought down just from seeing these racist white supremacist names and monuments and emblems right in front of me. So, again, the same way that we feel pride from seeing our names of our powerful leaders, we also feel a sense of depression, of sadness that comes in the name of our oppressors in front of us.
1: And do you think that it also has an impact on, um, you know, white people? So, in terms of sense of entitlement and white privilege, what do you think the effect may be? Um, for someone who um, may have maybe a neutral view of, of a different race, but then learning that this school is named after someone who thought that they were less than. Does it, will it have an effect in that way as well?
2: Yes, absolutely. It absolutely has an effect. Well, number one, we need to just examine the fact that racism, the problem of race in America starts and ends with white people. So there is no just sitting back saying, I'm a good one, I'm not actively racist. You have a duty, you're compelled, if you're not racist, to combat racism. It was white people throughout history that brought us over here, that stole land, that wiped out indigenous populations. Then they're also the ones who benefit from this white supremacy right now. So you can't just sit back and say, I'm neutral in this fight right now. So that's number one. I was like, I forgot my next point too.
1: (laughs) Well, we're going to let you think about it for a minute because we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Angaza Laughinghouse, an attorney and community organizer for the Black Workers for Justice. Sierra McCay who is a rising 3O law student at NCCU School of Law. And Deborah Dix Maxwell, who is president of the New Hanover NAACP. And we've been talking this hour about Confederate monuments in North Carolina. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us.
2: Since its debut in August of 1995, WNCU 90.7 FM, licensed to North Carolina Central University has consistently fulfilled its mission to provide quality, culturally appropriate programming to public radio listeners in the Triangle area. The format of this listener-supported public radio station entertains the jazz aficionado, educates the novice jazz listener, and disseminates news and information relative to the community at large. For more information about WNCU 90.7 FM, please visit its website at www wncu.org. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been the Legal Eagle Review.
1: And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour about Confederate monuments in North Carolina. And we have with us in our virtual studio, Angaza Laughing House, who is an attorney and community organizer, Deborah Dix-Maxwell, who is president of the New Hanover NAACP, And Sierra McCahern, who is a rising 3L law student at NCCU School of Law. And right before the break on Gaza, we were talking about, you were sharing the power of a name and how uh, being in a a schoolhouse, a particular building that has a name of a, that's named after a white supremacist, someone who thought less of Black people has an impact on the psyche of Black people. Um, And you were talking about, the impact that that might also have on on white people who are in those spaces.
2: Yeah, so that conversation, I think it starts with just the understanding of this sense of white superiority that maybe individuals don't realize they have, but as systemically, as a nation, as a people, white America has. And it's played out over the centuries, the centuries of our existence and interaction with them and with them of people of color. So you think this sense of superiority they have would lead them to feel privileged enough to come into other people's lands, take resources from that land, exploit the land, pull people from the land to come and work in other lands, steal lands, make treaties with Native Americans and turn around and break those treaties. All over the world, go through and subjugate people. This sense of superiority they have has led to some very heinous, terrible acts. And so now when you walk into a schoolhouse or whatever... With the name of a racist, a white supremacist, and you uplift that name, it gives credence to the fact that we're superior. We can do whatever we want to. And we also see this playing out just now, man. You see brothers and sisters getting the police called on them for the simplest things that anybody can do. You see everyday white folks, old country folks down there in Georgia got the nerve to tell a brother to stop jogging through the neighborhood. And when he doesn't feel privileged enough to shoot him, that superiority, that sense that they feel is dangerous and it can't be allowed to continue right now and every time we walk into a building and see these names being uplifted it just gives credence it feeds back into that
0: well you know one of the problems that uh that we encounter is our lack of knowledge about some of these statues some of these uh monuments and names that we have on uh buildings i i i can recall in my uh, race in the law class. I always talk about the uh, 1898 Wilmington uh, Rebellion uh, that, uh, that occurred. And uh, I can't count on my uh, two hands the number of students that I had in those classes from Wilmington who had never even heard about uh, 1898. And I dare say that there were many people who lived in Wilmington uh, who were not aware and may not still be aware of uh, uh, 1898, for instance, riding past the uh, Humacall Park uh, and the uh, racist history that surrounds that. And uh, earlier, uh, Sierra talked about Horton Middle School and the history around the person who that school is named after, or the Josephus Daniels uh, Middle School and the History or the Joyner <laughs> uh, Middle School in Raleigh, which is named after one of the persons who, were, uh, who was also engaged in the 1898 uh, rebellion. So it, it behooves uh, all of us uh, to get some uh, information on these people that uh, we allow uh, to uh, uh, be placed, these names to be placed and remain on these uh, many buildings and monuments that we have. And one, one final note: the uh, North Carolina Court of Appeals is in the uh, Ruffin Building. Uh, Thomas Ruffin, who is probably one of the most notorious judges uh, during the uh, Jim Crow uh, era and during the uh, Reconstruction days, who uh, authored a uh, an opinion uh, in the uh, which talked about. Uh, the uh, permission of uh, white slave owners to uh, whip uh, their, uh, their slaves and to, uh, that these slaves had no rights that uh, whites were bound to, uh, to respect. Yet at the North Carolina Court of Appeals, we honor uh, that person by having his uh, statute uh, placed right in the entranceway of the building along with his name being etched on the uh, outside of it, so uh, you know this notion of uh, the uh, white superiority is there. But then, if you don't know what the meaning is, then that meaning somehow uh, diminishes and uh, subsides. So there's, there's a lot of a lot of stuff that we need to do uh, to better educate ourselves and our community about all of these uh, different uh, iterations.
2: Can I pick you back off that point, sir? Please. Got it. Yeah, I agree with you with the point about history. And I feel like we have a personal responsibility to learn our history, study our own history. And it's interesting to me, man. Back at our cultural center in Raleigh, we would give out these Black Freedom Manifestos. And I'd give them out to brothers and sisters and a lot of my homeboys. Like, it was just a little 30-page, tiny little booklet. They wouldn't read it for nothing. But then when white folks come to the center, they would say, hey, what's that right there? Can I take a copy of that? And guys, I'll give you $5 for that right there. So I'll be like, "Hey, man, go ahead and take it. Next time I know these jokers turn around, calling me, saying they want to talk about what happens. Next time they can come, let's talk about what we read with this right here. And it would irk me. I couldn't understand it because it was our history. And even thinking all throughout that, man, so I see a lot of black lawyers and college students that read whatever the professor tells them in order to get by the class. But after school is over, it's like they don't have the energy, the will to read anything. So they're sitting there on a big, soft, comfortable couch with a big 200-inch TV, Saying that, guys, I just don't have the space. I don't have the energy to read anything after this, man. I I, I can't do it. And even worse, man, they might read a quick article on their phone. But reading a quick article on your phone is just like eating a snack throughout the day. When the real meal, the real nourishment comes from actually picking up a book and reading about your history. So it's not enough for our people to just say that, that we don't have the energy. We don't like reading. No, we forced to. We have an obligation to. If you're oppressed, you have an obligation to study your oppression and your Or The same way white folks study our history, understand everything, study sex, sociology, everything happening with us politically. We got to do the same thing because they study our history in order to dominate us. So we have to study our history in order to break free from their
1: bondage. Mm-hmm. Deborah.
3: I agree, and Irv was part of the Wilmington 10, part of the Innocence, and even in this city, as we went and secured petitions at that time, I had to explain to younger people, I said, just Google them, please, because I got tired, you know, I always had, so then I made a little brief history card that I would take while I was trying to get secure signatures within my own city for people who grew here. Hugh McCray has finally acted nice about the park. My grandmothers for Peace Group, I'm part of, not mine, went two years ago to speak to him. And he was not nice to the grandmothers. That's probably why I wasn't allowed to go, because I would have <laughs> defended them. Um, but my parents are not from here. So I learned about the park as a young adult, why I should not be there. But there was a hidden suppression that through all these years for some people it seemed to still... At, still come through not to fight. And so I'm glad to see the youth waking up and fighting because there was a, a generation that was slicing between that was suppressed because their parents survived the massacre. And some people were just quiet about it. There's so much about that we will never know because it was suppressed history. And so we must shout. And I'm so glad to say before I stop speaking that I'm proud to say we have a freedom school this summer for the first time in Wilmington, so we will be empowering and educating more youth here. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and congratulations on, on getting that Freedom School, um, so vitally important. And, and as Angaza was talking, you know, we think about uh, just the energy that it does take to learn our own history, and that's in large part because we're not learning it in school. We, we are learning someone else's history. And uh, historically, we've been kept from from the truth. And so, when we think about what will galvanize, um, further galvanize, I should say, young people, uh, Sierra, I wanted to get your thoughts on what you, you mentioned that that some of this history you've learned, you know, recently. What is it that uh, caused you to dig a little deeper and to to start learning about um, some of these these uh, um, occurrences or, you know, people, what what galvanized you to do a little digger deeping or deeper digging, I should say?
4: Um, I think I've probably gotten like little pieces like over time and just having a, a um, greater appreciation now that I'm older. And, I, you know, I think that it's very important to impart like that knowledge on children, you know, when they're young, um, like speaking back to George Moses Horton, like, you know knowing that he was an enslaved like poet and like taught how to read and so like i remember having like a small program like at our school at horton one time like just learning about him but the what you do with that as a kid is different than what you do with that as an adult um and so i think like continuing to um to have programs like continuing to like dig um is about like surrounding yourself by people who want to know more um, and then continuing to put information out there and in, in mediums and ways that people can understand it like right now social media is a big thing and even though sometimes it's terrible like it has power and so how do we use that like how do we use the time that we spend with our younger cousins and our you know sisters and brothers or um, even our friends that are our age you know do we sit down and talk to people who were older or who experienced some of these things that that we don't have to experience anymore um in the um very obvious um ways that they experienced it now we're having to experience it in very in more subtle ways now obviously more you know but i think you know there's there's value in having those generational conversations um watching movies like 13th coming out when they see us like these are movies that that young people can, can grab onto and, and feel in a different way than maybe they would have been able to feel just reading a book um, 10 years ago. So I think it's staying, you know, it's our job to stay current with ways to reach people. Like, what are people doing right now? And how do we put this information in the stream that they'll catch it? Um, and I, I think that's our job to give to the youth. And I think that's how, you know, they'll continue to stay abreast. And I think when you want to learn more, like you'll you'll do it. And at least you'll have those little breadcrumbs that, you know, gave you the opportunity to to know where to start when it's time or when you feel compelled or when you're tired. Um, you have you have little pieces that you can pull on to to dig deeper.
0: Well, you know, there, there, there's so much that, uh, you know, as as an African-American uh, that you have to uh, to confront. Uh, we deal with uh, uh, survival. Uh, we have now the uh, coronavirus that uh, we are dealing with. We deal with employment uh, issues. We deal with educational uh, issues where there is uh, significant disparities. Uh, we, we, there, there are so many different things. Uh, how do we f- focus on the uh, particular history that uh, we need to know that might undergird a lot of these uh, issues that we are dealing with that are tangentially uh, related uh, to what it is that uh, that we're suffering from.
4: I, I'll speak to that. I think um, because it's so s- systemic, I think allowing people to pursue, encouraging people to pursue their passions um, will show those systemic issues. So there's racism in healthcare. So someone pursuing pursuing that path, you know, has the opportunity to read about some of the the instances that have happened in healthcare that have been um detrimental to black people, um of course in law, um in every be, because it's everywhere uh, encouraging people to follow their their dreams and to to be interested in what they're interested in. Everybody isn't going to be interested in the disparities that come with employment. That's not everyone's not going to care about that, but there is something that they care about and unfortunately there's probably racism embedded in that somewhere. And so I think that having that opportunity um and encouraging people to to find those disparities in the place where where they're already interested um will help them because it will be directly in line with something they already have a passion for or care about.
1: And so when we're thinking about where we are in this particular moment, and this is a, a historical moment, what are your thoughts about where we go from here? Do you do you envision the momentum continuing? Uh, do you see progress and strides continuing to be made? What are your thoughts about, about the future? Deborah, let's start with you.
3: I truly hope for strides to continue right up to November the 3rd and beyond. Um, <laughs> that's my driving goal right now between that census and, and COVID. And I believe it can be because just like Ms. Sierra mentioned, people need to be educated because they're already feeling empowered by the movement that's going on. But they need to know about Ms. Gilmore, who sat in the back and cooked and let Montgomery boycott roll. I'm I'm sort of like a Miss Gilmore because I'm not right in the front right now. So understanding each person's place in this movement right now. And I think that we have a lot to go because as we said, this is the third time and we can't go another time. And crackle all of those structural and institutional biases and racisms that are out there. I'm trying my best and I know everyone on there is and I thank each of you.
1: On Gaza?
2: Yeah, so I always feel like one of the first things our people have to do, really, the thing they have to do is be organized. Because there's no power without organization. But what's troubling to me is that when I go and talk to groups of people, I ask them, yo, how many people in here are members of Black political organizations? Put your hand up, and hardly any of them do. That's right, hardly any of them do. And I cannot understand that. Huh? So we know that the other side has always been organized. That's why they've been able to whoop us, to beat us the way they have. We know that if Africa, back in the the 15th and 14th century, was just slightly organized and united, European colonizers would have stood no chance coming up against us. And even throughout history, the one strength that our people have always had was our ability to organize, whether it was slave revolts, whether it was during the civil rights movements, whether it was to support the Black Panther Party or the Nation of Islam, whatever it might have been, so that even when the government tried to break us in any way they could, as long as we had community organizations behind us, we could never, ever fold. So even when you look at the fact right now that there's no power without organization, you see evidence of it by looking at the other side. That's why white folks are always joining the organization wherever they can. So they join their neighborhood association. They join their PTA. They join whatever they can. I was working at Harris Teeter for a while, and I found out that the managers at Harris City, all in the region. Like, once or twice, see, they always got together for their conference. They had their own organization. And I thought, well, what the hell do they need to meet for a couple times a year? But then you feel that on the other side, and if the workers would have said, we want to organize, we want to meet a couple times a year, they would have said, absolutely not, because they know that there's power and us being organized. So we have to join the organization, huh? A lot of times, one of the things that bothers me about law school is that it teaches people oftentimes individualistic mentality. So I'm a lawyer. I can go and change the system myself. I can go to the courtroom as long as I study the law and got my, my shield and sword of justice on me. I'll make sure I fight for whatever is necessary. But you can't change anything going against this power system by yourself. And when I scroll through Instagram sometimes, I see attorneys out there, protesting with a suit on by themselves saying, I'm out here getting it all by myself. I don't need no help. It makes no sense. We have to be a part of organizations, building organizations so that our people can stand the fighting chance going forward in this world right now because it's only going to get worse coming up. It's only going to get worse, especially as this year goes on.
1: Right. And Sierra, we've got a few minutes left. What are your thoughts about, about the future?
4: Um, I think learning um, to continue to be a student all the time um, and continuing to use the information that um, I receive um, to to impart on someone else or uh, introduce someone to something else um, and continue to be a part of tough conversations like um, and to study um, to sit down with people like my grandparents and you know to have those conversations I think I think that's what's missing like a lot of this is not new and so how did how did the progression that we have happen and what was success, successful, what was not. And in taking that and, and moving with that um, is going to be a key part of how successful we are or aren't um, in this continued fight.
1: Well, all right. We are unfortunately out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, Deborah Dix-Maxwell, who is president of the New Hanover NAACP. Angaza Laughing House, who is a proud graduate of NCCU School of Law, an attorney and community organizer for the Black Workers for Justice. Sierra McCahern, who is an NCCU law student, a rising 3L. She's got one more year, one year left. Um, And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, and safe.